On the show today, we checked in with Global News Washington correspondent Jennifer Johnson about the Kyle Rittenhouse verdict that has the whole world watching closely. And with the devastating storm and flooding that struck parts of BC, a disaster preparedness expert tells us what needs to change. And we get the scoop on Facebook's future it calls the metaverse. They'll try to be all-encompassing with it. What's at stake for people's privacy? That's on the Weekend Mornings with Raji Sohal podcast. This last week, very big news story out of the States, Kyle Rittenhouse, who shot and killed two people who were at a Black Lives Matters protest in Wisconsin, was found not guilty on all accounts. Here to talk to us about that story is Jennifer Johnson. She's a Global News Washington correspondent. Good morning, Jennifer. Good morning, Raji. Thanks for having me. Thank you so much for joining us. So, so talk, walk us through uh, the, the not guilty on all accounts. Well, Kyle Rittenhouse was charged with five counts. The, the strongest of was intentional murder uh, in the killings of two white men who were uh, going out and um, joining the protest, the Black Lives Matter protest in Kenosha, Wisconsin, in August 2020, after Jacob Blake was killed by a white police officer, Jacob Blake being a black man. Um, the, I, I think that the verdict stunned a lot of people because he freely admitted that he went this Kyle Rittenhouse freely admitted that he went to the protest. He said to protect properties um, that might be damaged in the protest, but he was a 17 year old boy armed with an AR 15 assault rifle. And he freely admitted that he shot and killed these two men and wounded a third. Now he said he did it in self-defense and they presented a fairly, the prosecution, I mean, the defense presented a fairly compelling case that this might have been self-defense. Uh, I think that a lot of people were like, if you kill two people and wound a third, you should pay some time. You should get some prison time. The fact that he walked away a free man came as a shock to many people and angered a lot of people in America. There's been a lot of talk about the judge in this uh, case. Can you speak more on that? Well, the judge from the very beginning said that the prosecution should not refer, could not refer to the two men who were killed as victims, only as rioters or looters. So there's a lot of question of what kind of effect that had on the jury. The jury then, instead of looking at these men as people who are protesting the killing of Jacob Blake, there's, they were now labeled as rioters or looters. Um, and so, and, and the word arsonist was thrown around in the courtroom. So they immediately looked bad and people were very surprised that the judge instead of remaining impartial about these, I will call them victims, um, labeled them in a way that's pretty derogatory. And what about Rittenhouse's behavior in courtroom? Some were calling it at times a performance. Yeah, Rittenhouse had, you know, he went, the deal in Wisconsin, if you listen to what the defense attorney said, was, if you put your client up on the stand, uh, if you don't put your client up on stand, you're going to lose. And what he did was he put this young boy 
on the sand, and the young boy cried and cried and cried. Now, he, he's an 18-year-old teenager now. He looks like he's 14. He looks very young. Um, and he sobbed on the stand. And this was a jury that was made up of seven women. And the feeling among legal experts is this crying boy saying that he was chased down and he did this in self-defense was very effective on the jurors. Um, and, and, and if you look at the testimony, he, he comes across as being sincere and sad and heartbroken and describes his life as never going to be the same. But it's hard to lose fact of the matter that a 17-year-old boy armed with an assault weapon went into a protest some call it a riot. That's just not what I would consider, and I've raised two boys, normal behavior. And Jennifer, there's been so much talk about state lines and how different states have different rules. What do we know about what that has to do with the firearm that he obtained? Well, <clears throat> that's, a, that's a big question. I mean, he the testimony was that he was given the firearm while he was at the riot. Um, others believe that he had the firearm, was driven over state lines, and arrived with the firearm. Uh, you know, I, I don't know what exactly happened. And, you know, the, here's the thing about an American jury. You can think somebody is guilty, but you can't vote to convict them unless there's no doubt in your mind. You cannot have any what is called reasonable doubt in your mind. Right. So if those 12 jurors went into the jury room to deliberate, and a few of them said, well, I don't really know. I don't really know what happened. I don't really know if he was chased or if he might have felt like his life was in danger. And as long as there's some doubt in a juror's mind, they have to vote to acquit. So the standard for conviction is very high in the United States. And, you know, given how long it took to deliberate, uh, for the jury to deliberate, it was several days, there were certainly some holdouts, one would assume, that thought that he should be convicted, but they were eventually convinced to acquit him on all the charges. Um, but as I said, the bar is very high. Now, if there is a civil lawsuit, and, and there's word uh, that one may have been filed this morning, um, I was just reading up on that, that uh, the bar is not as high. You don't have to prove guilt beyond a reasonable doubt. So that's why in the case of, uh, for example, O.J. Simpson, after he was acquitted of murder, Nicole Brown and Ron Goldman's families filed a civil suit against O.J. Simpson and won that civil suit. They were awarded $33.5 million. They didn't get all that, but um, the standard of proof is much lower in a civil suit. And my guess is that Kyle Rittenhouse, this isn't over for him he's going to end up in court with at least one civil suit, if not multiple civil suits filed against him. Okay, that's so interesting. You mentioned also uh, that some people were stunned. Um, what was the response from people who support Rittenhouse? Well, many people said this is, you know, this is proof that the Second Amendment works. The Second Amendment in the United States is the right to bear arms. Um, so that, that, you know, once again, the Second Amendment has prevailed. Other people felt like this self-defense was the true story, that he was defending himself. Um, but, of course, there's, there's millions of others who felt like this 
that something, he should have paid for something, that two people are dead and that somebody should have paid for it. And then Kyle Rittenhouse admitted he shot them and he should have gone to jail for something. Uh, the question is whether or not the charges, whether or not there should have been lesser charges. If you look at the Derek Chauvin case, there were multiple first-degree murder, second-degree murder, third-degree murder. Uh, there were many charges so that the prosecution thought, you know, if you will, we're going to get him on something. Right. You know, even if we lose the, you know, the big ones, we're going to get him on something. And so, you know, it's always easy to Monday morning quarterback, but I people felt like he should pay some time for killing two people. Yeah, and didn't he state that he was going to go in to do his job? That is what he apparently said, and but he said the job was to protect the businesses in Kenosha um, because in, in previous Black Lives Matter protests and some had turned into riots, businesses were burned and destroyed. That's what he claimed he was doing, but two people ended up dead. So, you know, yeah. Jennifer, you can draw your own conclusions there. I mean, you know, the other thing, Raji, is this has now put an enormous spotlight on another trial going on in the United States and Georgia, the Ahmaud Arbery right. trial, where once again, um, well, in this case, three white men, but white men have taken upon themselves to play the role of police, which mm-hmm. is what people said that Kyle Rittenhouse did, that he, as a white man, decided he needed to take care of things, police things, make sure things weren't destroyed or burned down. In yeah. the case of the Arbery trial, you've got three men who decided to take it upon themselves to make sure their quote wasn't a burglary in their neighborhood. So it'll be interesting how that plays out. I think that, as I said, now that the focus is really on that trial and people are, people are really hoping for a conviction there. Let's put it that way. We've been talking about disaster management throughout the show. Storms, flooding, and landslides. A state of emergency announced too late, some people say. Some people say that the government dragged its feet. That back during the heat dome and wildfires, uh, we knew that they were going to lead to landslides one day in the event of heavy rain in the future. Dr. Robin Cox is my next guest. She's a professor and program head of climate action leadership at Royal Roads University in Victoria. Hi, Robin. Good morning. Thanks for having me on. Oh, so glad to speak to you this morning. Robin, what is your response to to what's happened in BC? Well, my response, like everybody's, I presume, is, uh, you know, deep uh, empathy for the people who are directly impacted, all the farms, all the people that were stuck in the landslide. Obviously, that's the start. And then... You know, following that, most of my work focuses in and around uh, disaster risk reduction and climate change and climate adaptation. So uh, I look at this as a huge prompt, just the same as the heat dome and the wildfires this summer is a huge prompt to all of us to do more to prepare for and adapt to the changes that are here and and that are going to come. Robin, we keep thinking we have enough information, enough data from the scientists. If that's the case, why are we so unprepared? Well, we we definitely have a lot of data, and that increases every year. We get more and more accurate. Uh, but that's not really uh, directly impacting preparedness. Preparedness requires an investment of time and resources and really sort of thinking ahead proactively. And I would say generally, 
we're not that good at that as a society. You know, I think COVID has demonstrated that, but most disasters demonstrate that. We know that they're coming and we know that with climate change, these kinds of extreme weather events will increase in frequency. And uh, we need to invest now in order to prepare and adapt to them. And that's a, that's a hard sell politically sometimes in terms of the uh, political life cycle and putting money in where the benefits of that money may not happen until uh, much later. But even at the individual household level, you know, trying to manage day-to-day expenses uh, in the context of COVID, of course, that's been even harder. And then being asked to or prompted to invest now in preparing for events that may or may not happen is is a difficult sell and, and we're not that good at it. Yes, you mentioned investments. Um, there are, there tend to be talks of investment during a crisis and then the crisis yep. passes and those talks seem to dwindle. How can we keep the investments that you're saying are required at the forefront of a political agenda? It's, it's a really good question. And I think, you know, one of the things is that we need to be active uh, as citizens, not only in in the run-up to an election, but uh, all the time. And so reaching out to our representatives and asking, demanding that they do more, being willing ourselves to understand that those kinds of investments that we need, not just in the Fraser Valley, but right across the province, uh, to prepare for the kinds of events that we saw, uh, require us also to be willing to do our part individually as households, uh, to work with communities, neighborhood groups to prepare, and to uh, make the investments even with our tax dollars. So I think we have a lot of influence as citizens, as voters, but we have to keep that up. It's not sufficient just to do it on the day of an election. Yeah, you kind of hint at it there. I'm so curious to get your opinion on what role you think politics do play, because the flooding crisis has shown us that what was going to happen was going to happen no matter the party. The kind of events that we saw have nothing to do with the party in charge. I I, I agree with that. I mean, I think every government... Uh, we are not going to manage this with one single election cycle, one single, you know, government. So we have to, we have to collaborate, we have to coordinate, and we have to understand that in this context of climate change, even as we work to reduce emissions, and we're, we're not doing uh, that well on that front either, uh, there's certain locked-in risks that we have to be preparing for and adapting to. And uh, we have to... We have to anticipate that this is going to be a long-term uh, re- uh, demand on our resources and on our willingness to prepare. Um, and as I said earlier, to work with uh, governments, but also to do our part in, you know, whether you're uh, running a farm or you have a household, understanding the risks that, that are present in your geographic area, understanding how to prepare and try and mitigate some of those risks at, at every level. And then, as I said earlier, working with governments, well, it's not just provincial, it's provincial, municipal, federal governments, to, to ramp up our adaptation, to invest in adaptation. We have an adaptation strategy uh, in BC that's sort of working its way uh, through the government, and we have to put pressure on the government's uh, and treasury boards to invest in those plans and really say this is where we need to be investing if we are going to be resilient in the context of climate change. 
Robin, you teach a course uh, in climate action leadership at Royal Roads University. You study these kinds of emergencies that we can't even um, quite fully predict. But I'm curious what your thoughts are on these alerts that everyone is talking about. Should the province have alerted everyone of what was happening in real time? What are your thoughts on that? Well, I think I have several thoughts. I mean, it's very easy to criticize the government, and I don't know why they didn't use the uh, direct-to-sell uh, alert system. I think that's a question that needs to be asked and answered. Uh, certainly other provinces have been using them uh, over the last number of years. I think at the same time, at the individual and community level, we have to not wait for those, and this is not to blame anyone, but to say we have to start taking responsibility. As soon as there is a flood watch, thinking, how am I prepared? How is my family prepared? How is my farm prepared? How, are, how am I ensuring the safety of of my animals? Have I done all that I can do at that level? At the community level, again, you know, supporting people doing that and supporting the community as a whole doing that. And then with governments getting much more proactive. So I think the alert uh, system may have helped. Uh, and I think that's absolutely a question and an answer that we need to explore and ask the government to explore. And at the same time that we all as households and, and communities need to understand that uh, the provincial government is not going to solve everything, and we can't wait for those kinds of alerts. I mean, they're helpful, but as soon as we, as soon as we, well, long before a flooding event happens, for example, really thinking through what what do I need to do to prepare my business, my farm, my family, uh, and then, as I said, working across the layers of government to make sure that those things happen. I'll be interested to see what the analysis is around the alert system. And as I say, other provinces are using it. Robin, you mentioned something a lot, uh, which is communities and households that they need to mm -hmm. take responsibility. Now, we are seeing that in the aftermath, a lot of communities are coming together, a lot of households are, are uh, helping others and looking within and thinking, okay, what do we do next time and whatnot. But when we have these flood watches in the future, when Environment Canada issues that there's going to be heavy rainfall warning, what can we do to make sure to ensure that uh, communities and households are taking it seriously, are taking responsibility? Mm -hmm. Well, as I said earlier, I think one, one important thing to remember is not to wait until there's a flood warning. Uh, a lot of what we can do to mitigate these risks, to prepare for them, and to adapt in the ways that we need to adapt take time. And so that should start long before uh, a flood alert or a wildfire alert happens. Uh, when, when, so ideally, people have some sense, a plan in place for themselves, for their home, for them for their farm, a plan um, that has anticipated things like rising water in buildings and, you know, what a sump pump can do or not do, etc. Uh, where there are going to be additional risks from, you know, stored chemicals in a flood, for example. So I think, again, you know, we can do that individually. Uh, communities are working with provincial governments and, and many of the uh, landholders in the Fraser Valley, I'm sure, also have been part of that as the agriculture industry works to prepare for climate change. Um, that said, if, if nothing else, this particular disaster and the heat dome this year, really, should have and needs to 
alert us that we need to do way more, way more quickly. We cannot wait for these things and then do it. It's much more expensive to recover from a disaster than to prepare for it. And and we know that there's lots of research demonstrating that, you know, there's, a, there's about a four to one or five to one return rate on the investments in disaster risk reduction when it comes to the cost now as opposed to the costs after a disaster. So I think there are many things we can do. There are many people already working on this, but we need to ramp it up. We need to get really honest with ourselves and understand that we are in a crisis and a crisis that is going to get worse. And we have to do, we have to take the steps that we need to take, getting information, being aware, having emergency preparedness kits for ourselves as household, having a plan and having talked about it in our families, in in agricultural areas, doing that, but also thinking through what can I do to make my farm, my uh, my livestock as safe as possible, and what will I do when the alerts happen? So how will I you know, make make access for animals to get to higher ground? How will I have, uh, you know, potentially, uh, you know, raise my building so that the, if there is a flood, the floodwaters are not uh, entering into the building as high and drowning animals? These are all things that we can do, and it requires preparing in advance, having a plan, having enough uh, uh, household emergency kit, a farm emergency kit, and and really being proactive in the ways, as I said at the very beginning, that we uh, tend not to be. Uh, again, with COVID, COVID's another example of that. We really appreciate your perspective on this, given that it's where your expertise lies. What should our next steps be in the province? Well, of course, we have to get through this. So at that level, obviously, there's going to be a lot of support required for individual households, for farms, for communities. And and that's going to take some time. We know that the recovery process from any disaster is a long-term process. I think within that process, we absolutely need to be recovering with climate change in mind. So we need to have a climate resilient approach to disaster recovery so that we're not recreating the same problems and waiting for the next flood or wildfire, et cetera. So I think that's absolutely critical. And obviously within there, it's about supporting uh, folks coming together and supporting people through what is a very, very challenging process. There's just no way around it. It's emotional, it's long, it's bureaucratic. At the provincial level, again, we have a climate adaptation strategy and and, uh, it's sort of wending its way through government. Uh, What I would like to see is a, a very clear, transparent commitment to funding that adaptation strategy and really investing in adaptation in these critical risk areas where we know, uh, for example, I mean, the Fraser Valley is a huge part of our food security here in BC. It's a a place where a lot of our food gets produced. Um, Obviously, the road infrastructure, again, is critical for all kinds of reasons. So really investing in that and thinking through what the 20, 50-year, you know, risk cycle is going to look like based on climate projections and recovering with that in mind, rebuilding with that in mind. And there are many ways in which uh, those kinds of investments will not only improve our chances in the context of these climate uh, accelerated and fueled kinds of natural hazard-related disasters, but also potentially make our communities better places to live in. You know, um, this is about resilience and really addressing a, a challenge and a crisis that 
uh, we need to address collectively and collaboratively. What you mentioned, Robin, requires time and resources, a lot of money, a lot of money that would put a country that's already facing so much debt, many would say, uh, into a spiral. How do we convince uh, politicians to, to commit to adaptation when that's the case? I wish I knew that because I would have done that already. I think the, <laughs> the reality is that, uh, as I said earlier, these kinds of events cost way more money, billions of dollars in the aftermath. And we're not going to avoid all of the damage, but the more we can invest now in reducing those risks and preparing and adapting to them, the lower the expense. The challenge, of course, is that our election cycles are four years. And so uh, thinking, you know, 10 years out, 20 years out is not necessarily in... um, every politician's mind or every politician's commitment. So I think we as citizens have to ensure that that stays front and center, regardless of who's in office, regardless of what party is in office. And really, as I said earlier, demand that we make those investments. Yes, it is billions of dollars to invest in this, but it's going to be billions of dollars uh, every time, you know, we have one of these major uh, disaster events. And there's a lot of research and statistics to support that. I don't know if you remember at the uh, beginning beginning months of COVID, we saw uh, what we were calling in the media, you know, a hockey stick curve where you could see that risk curve go up. Right. Well, the risk, the, the, the cost curve of the risks uh, related to natural hazards, even before we were talking a lot about climate change, is as steep and getting steeper. So the costs are there regardless of where we invest the money, before or after. If we invested it before, there's less suffering, uh, potentially less costs, and greater resilience all around, greater resilience in our communities and our families and, and in these really critical sectors. There's just no way to avoid it. The climate projections, um, and even just looking topographically at BC, one can see how much of the land of BC is actually high risk. How can we go about troubleshooting when infrastructure is already in place in these areas? Uh, Is that even a challenge we can tackle? Yeah. Well, I think it is a a challenge we can tackle and we have to tackle. Of course, um, you know, every sector is is impacted by and will be impacted by climate change. So there are things that we can do in our forest management practices, and we're already hearing more and more about uh, controlled burning and uh, cultural burns, learning a lot from uh, Indigenous people on, and, and forest management practices that they use that worked, that uh, were destroyed uh, through colonization. Uh, in terms of these other risks to infrastructure, obviously, uh, the, like the BC engineers and government are working very closely to think through how do we um, create more resilient infrastructure in the context of these escalating risks. At the same time, uh, we're somewhat hampered, I would say, by how slow regulations and standards and building codes change. So, for example, um, you know, when uh, when buildings are lost due to a flood such as this, uh, insurance often requires that you're rebuilding to the same standard. And we should be rebuilding to a climate future standard, a climate 
now, you know, standard. And so we need to find ways to push through those kinds of regulations and changes in building codes, but also to incentivize uh, folks not to wait for that. Because if we wait for those, we're already behind the curve. And we're already behind the curve now. Um, as you've already said, we've got a lot of r- infrastructure that's at risk. We've watched, uh, you know, all the highways that were impacted with these floods. And we have to start thinking through not the one in 100 year flood, but, you know, this this term that uh, many politicians have been using, the unprecedented floods. They're all, well, or many of them are going to be unprecedented. So we need to just assume that unprecedented is is heading towards us and plan for that and, and invest in infrastructure in ways that do uh, not necessarily reduce uh, risk to zero, but uh, may re- may very well reduce the damage that is experienced and start making decisions on where and how we build. Uh, where where do we put infrastructure? Where do we where do we allow people to build uh, businesses and homes? And if they're in floodplains or lakes such as this, then how do we support them adapting and retrofitting? And unfortunately, retrofitting buildings and uh, other infrastructure is often more expensive than than building it from the start. But this is where we're at, and we need to make these investments and just uh, get on with it. The road ahead sounds very steep, Robin. Thank you so much for your time. Thank you, and thanks for focusing on this very important issue. I think the the, the key here also is for all of us to learn more, be aware, and then understand that we all have a responsibility and we can all work together for a climate-resilient future. Facebook was going to rename and rebrand itself as something called Metaverse, and a lot of people thought it was just a marketing stunt, but then it quickly became clear that this is much, much more. Here to talk about what Facebook's futuristic Metaverse encompasses and what this could mean for all of us is Bree McEwen. She's a professor of communication and culture at University of Toronto. Thank you for joining me, Bree. Hey, thanks for having me. I find the metaverse so interesting. First off, for our listeners, what is the metaverse? Right. It really is uh, fascinating to think about the possibility of a whole new social world, right? Um, I do think a lot of people have the idea that it will be some sort of program that you sign up for, like you might sign up for Facebook. But actually, the metaverse is a lot of different pieces that would make it happen, right? There's the internet connectivity there is the actual hardware, like the headset that you would use to access it. And then when, within that headset, you have access to lots of different uh, programs and applications that you might use within the metaverse. Some of those are social programs to just go and interact with other people. Some of those could be for work meetings. Some of those could be for entertainment, games, etc. Um, so it's the, the possibility of a lot of different places for you to go within the metaverse. Yeah, you wrote in an article in the conversation uh, that we should all be concerned about how Facebook will collect and use data within the metaverse. What did you mean by that? Well, so when you are online, right, we know that lots of different entities collect data about you in order to sell things to you. And that shapes the way that our internet use happens. That shapes the way that our social media use happens. It it shapes the algorithms we get, etc. But we still have a lot of different choices in these spaces, right? You can be on a Facebook product or a meta product, I guess we would say now, like Instagram or Facebook. You could be on Twitter. You could be on Wikipedia, right? You can be in all these different spaces that have different um, folks 
in the background, right? What Facebook really wants is for everyone to be in one universe that is a Facebook universe. So that way they can collect all of your data. And to be in virtual reality, you are data, right? You, you have to uh, exist in a way that is recordable. Otherwise, it, it doesn't work as a computer program, right? And so if your social space that you're going to is controlled by Facebook and your business meeting is controlled by Facebook and the gym that you go to for a VR exercise program is controlled by Facebook, that is great for them because now they have a lot of data in order to categorize you in order to uh, tell marketers and advertisers exactly what they should advertise to you and create these custom audiences. And so having the same business model that we have for one social platform to control the entirety of virtual social reality is concerning. Yeah, well, you mentioned there that Facebook would have all your data, all these different aspects of your life and lifestyle would be linked together. To me, it sounds like that would be very difficult to opt out of then once you're in it. Yeah, that is exactly my concern, is that we know that Facebook is really difficult for people to quit. Every time there's a Facebook scandal, you know, a hashtag goes around, delete Facebook, and a few people do, but most people don't because the function of having their social network all in one spot is really, really useful for people, right? And the function of having all of these things together um, will be useful for people. And if your boss says, hey, you're going to a meeting in, in Oculus, in Horizon, right? You're going to a meeting. So I think now is the time for people to think very carefully about how we want uh, this sort of space to be set up. What do we want the infrastructure of the metaverse to look like? Is it one company that controls everything? a walled garden, um, or is it more like the internet we have today where you have the connectivity, the hardware companies are separate, and then you go to the different places that you want to go to and you have those choices. Well, and even today's internet is highly monopolized um, by just a few, a handful of companies. This business model that you're describing is, you say, by design, um, meant to encompass as much as possible, keep people hooked. The metaverse sounds like it will be all-encompassing based upon the um, video that Mark Zuckerberg stars in, in which he describes the metaverse. It suggests control over a lot. Is that... Is that even allowed? I mean, right now, there's not any regulations that I know of about virtual reality spaces. Um, I'm not, there might be some things from the internet that might cross over, some digital data collection. There might be some different things, you know, in Europe with the GDRP. But right now, we haven't regulated anything. So it is, it is fair game for however it wants to get set up. Facebook is a major player in the market. They know that. They've been... Um, collecting a lot of the talent in this industry. Uh, so it will be very difficult for, for other companies, for other entities to be able to compete with their model unless there's some sort of step in that says, well, actually, we need this to be a little bit more open, um, much like we did with radio, right, when it first started, or we had uh, control over communication channels with television. We need those kinds of um, outside regulation independent voices involved in this creation of this new infrastructure, as well as the big companies who are putting funding into it. So Brie, why don't those regulations exist already then? Why aren't, or why are they not being put into place before the metaverse starts? Sure. So I think we make some of the same mistakes that we did with social media early on with VR headsets. There's two kinds of, of problems. One is that 
difficult to see where VR is going to be and if it's really going to take off, right? Um, it's always sort of a five-year-out thing in the industry, but it's getting close, and there are some really good programs, and we're starting to have more social programs. So as a social science, I think a lot of the hardware problems are becoming um, taken care of, and now it's time to bring the social scientists in to think about how people are actually going to interact in these spaces. Um, and so that is, is kind of one of the issues. And then the other issue is that when social media came out, right, it was seen as a fad. It was not, you know, a big thing. If you had problems with it, if you had issues, the answers were often like, well, don't use it, right? Um, don't use it. Don't be on it. And then don't worry about it. But we found that the social functions of those sites so far outweighs people's thoughts of the risks of that site. And so now we have that information, we know people will use something that's very functional for them, even if it has a risk to their privacy, um, a risk to broader societal issues. And so we could go into the VR world with that mindset of, hey, this is something that seems like it might be a fad now. The major thing that people do with VR now is play games, but let's take it seriously. Let's take Zuckerberg seriously with where he thinks that VR could go and consider how we might regulate for that future instead of just, oh, it's a, you know, it's a fun toy at this point. Thanks for listening to the Weekend Mornings with Raji Sohal podcast. Be sure to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. And you can listen to the show live on 980 CKNW from 6 to 9 a.m. every Sunday. Have a great week.